Uh, and uh, in in God's providence, uh, we are uh, just a few sermons away from the end of Exodus. Uh, my intention, at least as it stands right now, is to actually preach 35 to 39 together. So we may be three sermons from the end of uh, the book of Exodus. Uh, this morning, Exodus 34 and... Uh, I had you stand for that, uh, for the affirmation of faith. We're actually going to do this again next week. Because the the passage is so long, I am actually going to read the whole chapter. Uh, but I didn't see the value in uh, making you stand for that long. So if you would, uh, give your attention to the reading of God's Word. Exodus chapter 34. And the Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first. And I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you. And let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, the God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. And he said, behold, I am making a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation and all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites and the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites. Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars, break down their pillars, cut down their asherim. For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of this sacrifice, and you take of their daughters for your sons, and Their daughters whore after their gods and make your sons whore after their gods. You shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread as I commanded you at the time appointed in the month of Abib. For in the month of Abib you came out out from Egypt 
All that open the womb are mine. All your male livestock, the firstborn of cow and sheep, the firstborn of a donkey, you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. You shall observe the feast of weeks, the first fruits of wheat harvest, and the feast of ingathering at the year's end. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. For I will cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders no one shall covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened or let the sacrifice of the feast of the Passover remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. And the Lord said to Moses, write these words. For in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands, as he came down from the mountain, Moses didn't know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray and ask for the Holy Spirit to help us as we come to understand this passage. Let's pray. Uh, we pray, O Holy Spirit, uh, we need your help. Uh, our ears are stopped, our hearts hard, our minds dull, but for your work. And so would you draw us to hear, to understand, to embrace, to trust uh, in this your word that it might also point us yet more clearly to Christ. For it's in his name that we ask it. Amen. Um, you know, there is, we, 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 you heard the echoes of, of chapter 34 in our affirmation of faith just a few minutes ago. I mean, the, the writers of the confession in section one of chapter two literally just took words from the Bible and created an affirmation of faith out of it. And, and some of those came straight out of Exodus 34, the notion that God forgives and the notion that God punishes the guilty. And yet, despite that, the, the general sense among people outside the church and quite possibly inside the church is that somehow God changes. Now, we, we, we said he's immutable. It, doesn't, it means he doesn't change, right? Without muting, without changing. There's no mutation. Like, he doesn't become more or less. He doesn't... And, and yet, we have this notion that 
that between the Old Testament and the New Testament, somehow God goes from difficult and harsh and and the principal that walks through the school dying to catch somebody doing something wrong to loving and kind and gracious and to the point that there are even churches, perhaps even denominations today that, that basically their view of Jesus is that all Jesus knows how to say is, oh, that's okay. It's really not a big deal. And this passage shows us that that's a wrong understanding of who God is. That God actually doesn't change. And he's, he's always been exactly as he is. And as he is today, he always has been. In fact, so clear is the gospel of grace in the Old Testament that I had an Old Testament professor who somewhat tongue-in-cheek called the New Testament the appendix. He was so convinced that salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in God's promised Redeemer alone, is so clear in the Old Testament that he could call the New, again, tongue-in-cheek, the appendix. Well, first in this chapter, I want you to see the foundation of this covenant relationship. Moses has to go back up on the mountain. He's been there and he's made multiple trips back and forth. You have to do the counting and figure it out yourself. Um, it's more than one and it's less than 10. And it's somewhere in between there. The number of times Moses goes up and down the mountain. He's, he's been up once before. He was up there for Five or six weeks before he came down with the Ten Commandments, before he's already done most of what God tells him to do in this chapter. And God tells him, bring two more tablets of stone with you um, because the end of verse one, you, you, you broke the first ones. Now, he broke the first ones because... When he was up before, when he was meeting with God before, and God wrote the Ten Commandments on the two tablets of stone, God finally said to Moses, Moses, I hate to tell you this. He didn't say that. But I hate to tell you this, but the people are down at the bottom of the mountain and, and they've built a golden calf and they're worshiping it. And so when Moses came down with the tablets, he broke the tablets. Now, it's possible he was merely angry. And rightly so, I might add. But I also think that the breaking of those tablets is a picture of what the people were doing. Because if you remember, when we looked at Exodus 32, we counted at least six of the Ten Commandments that Israel and Aaron, led by Aaron, were, were guilty of breaking, of, were guilty of, of violating no less than six of the Ten Commandments directly. And so that as Moses breaks these tablets, it's really a, a picture of what Israel was doing. It was a almost a visible sign of judgment. I'm, I'm breaking these tablets because you have broken what's written on these tablets. And so now in Exodus 34, Moses has to go back and get new tablets. And just for clarity, we talk like, we say things like, 
the first table of the law. And we tend to mean the first four commandments because they have to do with our relationship with God. We say the second table of the law and we tend to mean those commandments that have to do with our horizontal relationships. I don't think that's how they're written. Now, I'm never going to condemn you for talking that way. We'll talk that way and that's fine. That was not a big deal. I think actually all ten are written on both tablets. Because the practice, anytime you entered into a covenant relationship, and you know this, you've, you've bought a house, you've sold a house, and, and you have a copy of all those legal documents that you had to sit there forever and sign when you bought your house. Well, the person that sold that house also has a copy. For that matter, so does the lawyer, so does the courthouse, so do, who knows how many people have copies of that. Probably on the internet for all we know. When you enter into a covenant agreement, both parties get a copy. And so I think all ten laws, all ten commandments are written on both tablets and God's going to get a copy and the people are going to get a copy. Now, how do you give God, who is a spirit and doesn't have a body like men, children's catechism, let me commend the catechisms to you again. How do you give him a stone tablet that says, hey, here's the agreement? Well, you put it where he's going to be. In the Ark of the Covenant, in the tabernacle, in the Holy of Holies. Which is where Israel's was also. And so Moses is going back up on the mountain to to re-get, is that a word? To re-get the Ten Commandments that he's already been given once before. Israel understood their guilt. Israel understood. In fact, you, you saw this in the previous chapter. In chapter 33, right on the heels of the, the golden calf, God basically says to Israel, you're done. I, I, will, I will make sure you get to the promised land. I'm not going with you. An angel is going to go with you. He's going to get you there. And, and I'll give you what I promised. I'll give you people and, and place, but you don't get my presence. You've, you've lost the right to that. Israel understands their guilt. They understand that the Ten Commandments condemn them. They understand that they deserve destruction. But is that what they get? Do they get the big giant squash? You're done. I'm through with you. Do they get that? Because that doesn't seem to be what happens. See, Moses had prayed. Moses had said, look, I want to see your glory. I want to hear your name. In fact, you see this back in verse 19 of chapter 33. Uh, God says, well, basically, you're not going to get to see the glory, my glory. You can see my goodness. Um, but then he says, I will, I will show you my name. I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I'll be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 34, that request is answered. God tells Moses his name, the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, that covenant name, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. There's that Hebrew word, hesed. 
you got to like a language you get that requires you to spit sometimes. And so you you got to do that. The H for Hesed is back there. But there's you see this. It's it's in a lot of your um, uh, uh, versions, a lot of your translations. It'll be that word loving kindness in the Psalms. It's that Hebrew word Hesed. It's a covenant faithfulness and love and patience and steadfastness all kind of bound up into one. That's the description of himself that God gives to Moses when Israel deserves to be squashed. Slow to anger. Abounding in love. And so there's this picture then that that God is going to fulfill His covenant promises. He's going to keep His end of the agreement not because of who we are, but because of who He is. It's because of His character. It's because of His patience. It's because of His loving kindness. It's because of His, say it with me, chesed. It's because of that that He keeps this covenant Faithfulness. It's His grace and mercy that is the foundation of Israel's covenant relationship with God. He forgives sin, and yet at the same time, He will by no means, verse 7, clear the guilty. You, you said this in our affirmation of faith. Again, section 1 of, of chapter 2 of the Confession actually grabs that exact language after saying all of these things about being patient and loving and kind reminds us that he will punish those who are guilty. In fact, you just sang this, by the way. Let us love and sing in wonder. Verse 2, let us love. Verse 3, let us sing. Let, verse 4, let us wonder. Did you notice? Let us wonder grace and justice. Join. And they point to mercy's store. Grace and justice meet in God, in Christ, and they point us to his mercy. When through grace in Christ our trust is. When by God's grace you trust in Christ for your salvation, justice smiles and says, I'm done. I'm satisfied. There's nothing more I can demand because in Christ, God's justice has been satisfied. God has always been patient. He's always been, been forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. He's always been abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He's always kept steadfast love for thousands of generations, by the way, in verse uh, 7. And he's always, he's, all, he's always never let the guilty go unpunished. You work with me. Just humor me. It works. It makes sense. It's actually in the cross where grace and justice meet. You aren't simply, your sin isn't simply ignored. God's justice has been satisfied for our disobedience. 
The beauty is you aren't the one having to satisfy it. Christ did on the cross. The the foundation, the basis of our covenant relationship with God is and always has been His grace and mercy. The covenant is founded on God's grace, not on man's goodness. And that has always been true. Second, I want you to see the exclusivity of this covenant relationship. Um, In verses 10 to 26, um, you get a summary of Exodus 20 to 24. Uh, If you want the details and particulars of each of the Ten Commandments, that's on our website. Well, except for five, because somebody forgot to hit record me. Um, But that's on our website. You can you can get those things. And you notice that as you read through verses uh, 10 to 26 of of Exodus 34, you don't get exactly the Ten Commandments exactly as they are written in Exodus 20. In fact, you only get two commandments repeated or written as they were then. The second commandment, no graven images. The fourth commandment, keep the Sabbath day. Everything else is a sort of a summary of what we find in chapters 20 to 24, the beginning of Exodus 20, you get the Ten Commandments. And then the rest of 20 through 24 are the case laws. Those, those um, how do we apply this commandment in these situations? In, in such and such a situation, which commandment applies and how? And how do I bring the, the Ten Commandments to bear? This is, in essence, an abbreviated form of that. And so rather than than touch on each of the commandments as they are in this passage, I think it's more important for us to consider the implications that this section has for God's people. And the implication is this. Relationships come with requirements and expectations. You know this, right? The Beach Boys understood this, right? Um, all the guys go steady because it wouldn't be right to leave your best girl home on a Saturday night. The, the implication, see, there is that, that because we're going steady, whatever that means, some of you I'm sure know, um, because we're going steady, then he knows that he is required, he's expected to take her out Saturday night. And she has every right to expect that. She has every right to require it. But also the expectation works the other way. That when he says, hey, what are you doing Saturday night? Her answer better be, whatever it is, it's with you. So we understand that relationships come with requirements and expectations. That's what happens in this part of Exodus 34. Is we get requirements and expectations that are that are right and reasonable for this exclusive relationship. Notice in verse 10, God says to Moses, I meant to say that when we were reading it, that the he in verse 10 is God. It becomes clear, I'm making a covenant. Before all your people, I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth. And the implication there is that God's telling Israel, I'm entering into a relationship with you that no one else on the planet can claim. 
I'm going to have a, a covenant special relationship with you that no other nation in all the world is going to have. In fact, so much so that when I get you to the promised land, the ites, I'm going to get rid of them. They cannot expect of God the same things that Israel expects of God. Because of God's faithfulness, because of this particular, exclusive covenant relationship that God has with His people. God has said, we read it in chapter 33, I will be... um, I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious. I'll show mercy to whom I will show mercy. And he in his sovereign will has chosen Israel out of all the nations of the earth to enter into this special covenant exclusive relationship. And the reality is nobody else has it. It's an exclusive relationship because because God is committed to Israel only. Now listen. Is God sovereign over absolutely everything? Yes, we just said as much in our affirmation of faith. Does that mean somehow that the ites are left to themselves and God's not at all involved? No, no, that doesn't mean that at all. Does it mean he's, he's God where God's people are, but he's not God where God's people aren't? That doesn't mean that at all. It simply means that there is this special covenant relationship. In fact, it's exclusive because God is committed to Israel only. And and it's exclusive because Israel is expected to be committed to God only. That's why the language. Perhaps you parents got a little uncomfortable. Because three times. Verses 13 to 16, you get. If Israel is to leave the pagan worship practices of the ites standing when they get there, it is tantamount to whoring, prostitution. So when you get there, cut down their asherim, tear down their altars, break their pillars, destroy every vestige of of idol worship, of false worship, among the ites when you get there. Leave none of it standing. It's not, it's not okay to let it be there and stay away from it. No, remove the temptation. Remove the threat. Remove the danger. And, and manifest your exclusive commitment to God, to Yahweh, in how you treat these pagan, false deity worship practices. And should Israel chase after the gods of that world? Should Israel give itself to pagan idol worship of the ites? It is prostitution. It's an exclusive relationship. They're committed one to the other To the point that there is not that commitment to anyone else. And look, an exclusive relationship actually has bearing on your time. It it actually affects your calendar. When you have a good friend, you want to spend time with that good friend as much as you can. Unless and until you have, you know, the DTR, 
define the relationship? Unless and until you have a boyfriend or girlfriend and all of a sudden your friend friend seems kind of less interesting. Because when you have this, this boyfriend girlfriend relationship, then, then that means the free time I have, I really would rather give to her. That's the person I want. Whatever free time I can carve out, I'm going to try to spend it with that particular person person. So this exclusive relationship has it has an impact on your calendar. Well, that's exactly what the chapter does for you. There are three feasts a year. And you're expected to keep these feasts. The the Passover, the the first of the year that that celebrates um your um uh your deliverance from uh Egypt. Uh, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Ingathering, Feast of Booths that, that celebrate God's providence and care for you at the beginning of harvest and at the end of the harvest. It affects your annual calendar. It's three. In fact, so much so that God says, look, when you're keeping those feasts and all the men come to meet with me in Jerusalem, it doesn't say Jerusalem yet. That comes up later. I'm going to make sure your land is safe. No one will covet your land was the the language. No one will desire your land while you're keeping that. It it affects your annual, it it affects your weekly calendar. Notice verse 21, six days shall you work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, even in the busiest time of year, plowing time and in harvest, you shall rest. Because that calendar shows to God and to others that I'm in an exclusive relationship with Yahweh, with the Lord and creator of of all the earth. And I want to spend time with them. What are the things that make us go? I mean, but my kids are playing soccer. I mean, they got a soccer game Sunday. Or, or um, I, I'm really super busy or I've got a lot going on or it's Father's Day or Mother's Day or whatever. Like, what, what is the thing that you would say, no, this is more important than my, the day that God has established for cultivating this exclusive relationship? Whatever that thing is that makes you say, I'm going to do that instead of keep this day you need to go back and read verse 16. Because it's, you're saying, well, I'm in an exclusive relationship, sort of. But I kind of want to introduce this other person, this other thing into it. Everything commanded in verses 10 to 26 is intended to show to each other and to God that God and Israel are in an exclusive relationship. We see the, the foundation of this covenant relationship. We see the, um, what was the second thing? The exclusivity of this covenant relationship. And finally, we see the glory of this covenant relationship. Moses comes down from the mountain. He's been up there 40 days, 40 nights, hasn't eaten, hadn't, hasn't had anything to drink. God has sovereignly kept him uh, safe and alive because you can't do that. You can't go 40 days, 40 nights with nothing whatsoever. God has, has sovereignly 
divinely kept Moses healthy, but no doubt he looks shrunken and sunken. And by the way, his face is shining. Moses, we're told, verse 29, has no idea. Right? He didn't stop at Bucky's and grab a sandwich and go into that big, huge bathroom and check himself in the mirror on the way back to Israel. He came, he came straight down the mountain and went back to the people. And he has no idea what's going on. He has no idea the, the radiance of his face that, that the people see. He, he's not aware of. And that, that probably in and of itself has implications for us, does it not? Um. Are we sort of um, uh, uh, Leroy Brown, you know, likes to wear his diamond rings on everyone's, you know, he wears everything so everybody knows what he's got. Do do we sort of wear our shining face on our sleeve so that we can see it and we can talk about it and we can make a big deal about it and celebrate ourselves and just how wonderful we are? Or do we radiate God's glory in a way that even we don't recognize? Because you do realize this is, this, is, this is shining the way the moon shines. This isn't shining the way the sun shines. You realize the moon doesn't create light, right? The moon is not a source of light and heat. What you see at night is whatever sunlight can reflect off of the moon back to you. That's what Moses, Moses isn't glowing from the inside out. He's glowing from the outside out. He's glowing because God has met with him and he's merely reflecting that glory back to the people. It's the moon, not the sun. That's what we do. When we reflect God's glory, when we, when we celebrate that relationship we have with him and it manifests itself in us, okay, maybe your face doesn't shine. Maybe it's the way you live. Maybe it's, your love for Christ, it just sort of oozes out of you. But it's a reflected glory from being with God, from meeting with God. The people, of course, couldn't take it. Um, they said, Moses, this is too much. You're going to have to cover that up. Like, I can't, I can't look at you with that going on. And so whenever he met with God, he took off the veil. And when he came back to meet with the people, he had to put it back on again. You know what the New Testament does with that? Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Because Paul actually takes this chapter and compares the glory of that covenant to the glory of this covenant in Christ. To the glory of the covenant written in stone tablets, the glory of law versus the glory of spirit, the glory of, of tablets versus the glory of Christ. And in 2 Corinthians 3, the entire chapter, Paul spends his time looking at the cross and Moses' face in Exodus 34. And he says, imagine this. Moses' glory, that, that shining face is fading. And it's fading because that covenant is fading. Because the law is fading. Because it is going to give way to a greater covenant in Christ. A more glorious 
covenant. A permanent covenant. Not one that's going to die. Not one that's going to come to an end. And if Moses' face should shine because he met with God under those conditions, how much more should we as ministers of the new covenant, a permanent and lasting covenant, shine with the glory of Christ? You and I, because we live after, let us wonder, grace and justice, join and point to mercy's store. When through grace in Christ our trust is, justice smiles and asks no more. That glory isn't going anywhere. That covenant isn't going to fade. That relationship can't be taken away. That new covenant era is here until Christ returns. If Christ, if, if Moses' face would shine under that old covenant condition, how much greater is this new covenant? How much more lasting and permanent is the, the glory of this new covenant in Christ. May we celebrate our exclusive relationship with God founded on His grace and His mercy, not on our obedience, not on our goodness, but on His compassion towards rebellious sinners. And may we glory in that relationship together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have seen fit in Christ that having paid the debt that we owe, having faced the punishment that our sin deserves, justice can say, can throw up its hands and say, I'm done. I can demand no more. I and satisfied. <laughs> Father, would you cause us to glory, to rejoice in that truth, in those words that justice is satisfied. And Father, would you grow in us a love for cultivating our exclusive relationship with you that it would be our hope, it would be our glory, that we would delight in it, and that that would, would show itself to others around us. And Father, we pray that as that's true of Grace Covenant, and as that becomes more and more true of Grace Covenant, it would be a sweet-smelling aroma to those around us. Something they, for which they might long, and which might uh, improve the world in which we live. To the honor and glory of Christ, we pray. Amen.